Today we return to the sermon series from the book of Exodus, chapter 24. I'll give you a minute to find that in your Bible or a Red Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. That's Exodus, chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments, commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of the Lord. As Dolores said, we are coming back to our sermon series through Exodus, and it's sort of been a long time. We spent four weeks in Jonah, taking a break, but before that, while we were technically still in the series, we spent um, ten weeks preaching through the Ten Commandments in Exodus. But hopefully you can all remember from three months ago, at least vaguely, if you were here with us in that time, and if you're a visitor, we'll catch you up here in just a couple minutes. With that said, let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, I pray that you would be near us now as we seek to hear from your word. pray that you would be teaching all of us what it means to know and love you. Be with us sinners as we sit under your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. So, Christianity is about having a relationship with God. A relationship with God. If you have spent much time around church, you have almost certainly heard that. that You're supposed to have a relationship with God. But just saying that isn't always very helpful if we don't answer a second question, which is, what kind of relationship? Is my relationship with God supposed to be like with my best friend, or like with my accountant, or that police officer that pulled me over for speeding? What kind of relationship am I supposed to have with him? Well, the Bible kind of answers that in two ways. One way, which we're not going to dig into this morning, but one way is through metaphors. It gives these images that are supposed to help us picture our relationship. And it actually gives a bunch of metaphors. The most common one is probably that of king in the Bible. God rules the universe, and we relate to him as our king. Being a Christian is being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, this new nation of God. In the New Testament, the other really common image is that of father. God is our father as we're adopted into his family through Jesus. And we have the privileges and the access of children as we come to him. And there's lots of other images. God is a husband with the church as his beloved bride. God is a shepherd protecting and leading his people. God is a warrior who goes out and destroys our spiritual enemies. He's a mother hen gathering chicks under his wings. He's a builder or a potter and we are clay or bricks in his hand. Each one of those images says something true about our relationship with God. However, each one of them is also limited in significant ways. It is not the whole picture, which is why the Bible gives so many different images of what it means to be in relationship with God. One of the dangers, if we dwell only on those images, is that we can tend to take one or two of those images and absolutize them. Make those the kind of images that we use and ignore the others. And that always kind of leads to misconceptions. If you have only the mother hen, God, you miss his sovereign power and lordly um, discipline. If you only have the reigning king, you miss the tender love of the bridegroom. You need all of those images. So that's one way the Bible talks about it. And it's useful, but like we said, each of those pictures has its limits. The other way we can talk about our relationship with God is to look at the way that the Bible describes that relationship directly. Which is to say, not in terms of metaphors or images, but there are times that we see God come in Scripture and in a direct, concrete way, create or build part of his relationship. He comes and says, let's enter into this relationship. And in the Bible, when God does that, that is what we call a covenant. That is not a word that most of us use, but a covenant is a set of promises that establish a relationship. A set of promises that establish a relationship. And Israel, in the story in Exodus, they are already in covenant relationship with God. He makes a covenant with Abraham back in the book of Genesis, and that covenant is still in effect. In fact, early on in the book of Exodus, we're told that that covenant is why God comes and saves Israel from slavery. For example, way back in Exodus chapter 2, it says that God heard Israel's groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
And then that phrase gets repeated a bunch of times. God remembers his covenant. So Israel is in this relationship already with God. And then, while I know it's been a little while, like we said, in the book of Exodus, God saves and delivers Israel and brings them out and brings them to Mount Sinai. And then he appears in this, like, fire and thunderstorm on top of the mountain, and he says, I'm going to make another covenant with you. For example, from Exodus 19, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God says, this is this relationship, right? You will be to me this treasured possession, this kingdom of priests, but you will do that in the context of another covenant. Not that he's replacing the covenant with Abraham, just to be clear. What God does in this part of Exodus is that he sort of builds on it by making a second set of promises and adding another layer to Israel's relationship. He's establishing them as a holy nation. So God says he's going to do that. And then in what follows, first in chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments, which are God's initial kind of giving of the law and which we spent some time in. And then in chapters 21 through 23, uh, God starts giving all of these specific case laws that start to develop some of what the Ten Commandment means for Israel as a nation. And while I generally just preach every chapter in a book when we go through, we're going to skip those for now. Maybe at some point we can come back to them, but I wasn't really sure in a sermon how to cover. They're kind of addressing a whole bunch of different things, and um, so, so they're kind of starting to define, though, for Israel what it means for them to follow and obey him. And then in chapter 24, which is what we read this morning, God wraps up that covenant-making process. This is where he takes his promises and these commandments, and he seals them to make this new relationship with Israel. This is where that relationship is established. And so all of that said, here's what I then want us to do with this chapter this morning. We are called to be in relationship with God, but we can have questions about what that means. And while we're not going to get every answer from this text, I think we learn three important things that we have to bear in mind when we think about what it means to be in relationship with God. In this text, we see that God is always holy. We see that God's holiness demands obedience. And we see that God graciously satisfies his holy demands. We're just going to walk through each of those things this morning. First of all, God is always holy. Even as we are in relationship with him, God is always holy. Now that word holy is when we often get wrong. We think that word means morally pure. And God is morally pure, but that's really secondary. What holiness means at its root is that God is set apart. The word holy means set apart kind of by being set above or exalted. So you have, if you think of, someone thinks of a place or an object or something as holy, what they mean is that it's kind of set apart from normal places and it's sort of lifted up and exalted. And that's what it means when we say that God is holy. In the first place, this text tries to emphasize the fact that God is holy just in the sense that he in himself is unapproachable. He's so great that we just cannot draw near to him except by a special kindness of his grace. If you start in verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with them. 
So the people can't come up at all onto the mountain. And this, like, select group of the saints and leaders and priests of Israel is allowed to come up, like, to the foot of the mountain. But even they aren't allowed up onto the mountain. Only Moses is permitted to actually approach the presence of the Lord, which is stressing to Israel that as they're entering into relationship with God, he's still unapproachable, in a sense, in his holiness. Not only that, but this text would also say that God is in himself incomprehensible, that we cannot really even grasp his greatness. If you look then, um, if you go on and read, Moses tells us that, um, it says, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel, and under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. Now, this is where we need to pay attention to the details. Sometimes in the Bible, there's a gap between what we're told and then what is described. And when that happens, we should always pay attention to that gap because it's trying to tell us something. So what we're told is that they went up and saw God, right? But what is described then as their vision? It is the floor that God is standing on. <laughs> it's as if they're coming and saying we had this vision of God, but all that they actually are able to describe is the carpeting. And that's actually common in every vision of God in Scripture. In Isaiah and Ezekiel and Revelation, whenever people describe visions of God, what always happens is they say, here's what God looks like, and then they just describe stuff around him, like his throne or the angels in his court or the floor under his feet. None of them ever even try to describe God himself. And the reason is because Scripture recognizes that God in that way is incomprehensible and indescribable to us. We can't wrap our heads around him in himself. And that actually leads to a third reality about God, which is that in his unapproachableness and his incomprehensibility, he's actually, in Scripture, pictured as almost dangerous. He's dangerous to us as creatures simply by being God. Notice the way that Moses describes the results of this vision. He says, But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They they saw God, and they ate and drank. They see him, but it says he doesn't raise his hand against them, which, seems, which means kill them. And that seems to be the expected outcome, right? Exodus is saying, wow, they survived seeing God, which is why it says they, they survived to eat and drink another day, because that's so unexpected. Indeed, God's presence on this mountain in Exodus, is, it's described in all of the terrifying kind of awesome imagery you could think of. At the end of chapter 24, it says that to the Israelites— The glory of the Lord on that mountain looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. So you picture like this massive towering forest fire, and that's this blazing presence of God up on the mountain. And that's what Moses is called to go up into, and little wonder we're going to learn in a few chapters that Israel just assumes that Moses must be dead because he walked up into this inferno of God's presence. I remember hearing somebody a little while back talking about this experience that they had swimming with whales in the ocean. This was like a wildlife photographer. But they talked about how these huge whales were swimming, and they just happened to get this time where they swam right up past them. You know, they're right next to these whales. And how in that moment, they were suddenly just terrified because they looked at these whales and were like, this thing with a flick of its tail, like, it could just break me. And it probably wouldn't even notice. It would just keep on swimming. That, that distance between their size and the size of this creature left them with this sense of awe and fear. And something like that times a million is what these sorts of images of God are trying to convey. 
with a word, God created everything that is. With a word, he could unmake it all. And so whenever we come before him, it's like swimming with Leviathan, right? It's like recognizing that this thing, this being is greater than us, that he's holy. All of that might seem like a strange place to start when we talk about our relationship with God. Because we describe all of that and we're like, that God doesn't sound like a God I can have a relationship with, right? That God sounds like a God so beyond me that I could never know him. And that would be the wrong conclusion. The point of this story is that this wall of fire beyond description God is coming and entering into covenant with Israel. Calling them his special people. He is so great that he can descend and draw near to them and speak to them and enter into relationship with them even small, tiny creatures like you and me. But we must never lose sight of God's holiness when we talk about that fact. While we are in relationship with God, that doesn't change the fact that in himself he is unapproachable on our terms, incomprehensible to our minds, and how dangerous to us as creatures. Sometimes I hear preachers talk about God, and they'll say... um, They'll say, as they talk about our relationship, they'll say, like, God wants to have a relationship with you, which is true, like we've said. But what they seem to mean by it, and what they go on almost to say in some cases, is like, because you are so special, and God just really looks up to you and is so impressed by you, or so great that even God wants to be our friend, right, (laughs) is the message that they deliver. And that is not (laughs) the way that the Bible ever pictures our relationship. Instead, it would say the same thing, but it would say, like, God, God, God wants to have a relationship with you. Like, that's the way that we're supposed to hear that message of God's word. That this perfect, holy, eternal God would draw near to someone as tiny and sinful and stupid as I am, and he would enter into relationship. And the thing is... That that actually gives much more joy and hope than that first kind of you're so great way of thinking about God. In the you are special approach, having a relationship with God is actually kind of, you know, meh. You know, I mean, you're, you're the great one and God just wants to be like a part of your posse. He's like a hanger on to, you know, to the cult of me. But in the God is holy approach, it is like, It's like, you know, the most famous, powerful, important person in the world who you totally recognize is way greater than you comes to you and says like, hey, I want to be friends. I want to know you. Again, times a million though, right? When we're talking about God. You recognize in that that you don't deserve it, but the fact that we don't deserve it actually makes it better. What a privilege to be in a relationship with this great and holy God. So we need to be reminded God's greatness and holiness when we think about our relationship with him. We need to exalt and praise and worship and think of him rightly because that's actually what lends the beauty and meaning to the fact that he would draw near to us. So God is holy. The first thing that we should learn from this. The second thing we should learn from this chapter is that God's holiness demands obedience. God's holiness demands obedience. As God prepares to form this covenant, here is how the people respond. In verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. 
So Moses comes down from the mountain and tells Israel all of these commands of God, and they say everything that God says we'll do. And then in verse 4, Moses writes it down. It says that Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. This book of the covenant, which is what this thing Moses writes down comes to be known, is actually the beginning point and foundation of scripture as we have it, that Moses writes down and records these commands, and that throughout history as God has moved and communicated with human beings, that's continued to happen. So Moses writes it down, and then in verse 7 it says that he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. And that might sound repetitive, right? Because what happened is Moses comes and tells Israel everything that God has said. And Israel says, we will obey. And then he goes and writes it down and brings it back and says, now I'm going to read it to you. (laughs) And then they say, yeah, we will obey again. The point of that repetition is to emphasize that obedience is seen as a necessary and expected part of Israel's relationship with God. Throughout Israel's history in the Old Testament, One of their great sources of confusion was that they had this idea that they could be in relationship with God and enjoy the privileges of relationship with God without being called to obey God. They wanted the benefits of the relationship without obedience. And the Old Testament regularly calls out this way of thinking. I mean, just consider, here's an example, not because it's the best, but just because this last week I was reading from Jeremiah and came across this. But Jeremiah, in chapter 7, he spends the whole chapter calling out that attitude of just presuming upon God's grace. So here's the message. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What he's describing is this attitude where people come to Jerusalem to worship, and they say, look, we're God's people. This is, this is God's temple where God dwells with us. We have these privileges and are in this special relationship with God. We might be sinning, but look, it's the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Here is how Jeremiah says God responds. He says, here's what God says. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say we are safe, safe to do these detestable things, which is to say you cannot come to this place that has my name and claim this special relationship with me and not recognize that that place's demands on how you're supposed to live. The authors of the New Testament make the same point. We as Christians can still fall into that trap. Take John in his first letter. That first John is a discussion about how we know, what are the signs that we are in a relationship with God. And he gives a couple of answers, but one of them is obedience. Take this from John, 1 John 3. He says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. Or from chapter 5, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. The thing to recognize in both of those texts is that um, obedience is viewed not just as some set of rules or a way to be a good person, but it says we are called to obey because that's the natural outworking of being in relationship with God. Every relationship, every human relationship, places demands on the people that are in it. I mean, just think about, like, 
let's say you're an employee, right? You, you, have a, you work for a company and you have a boss. Um, I hope this isn't news for you, but if you are that person and you stop showing up for work and you stop doing your job, you're going to get in trouble. And you cannot then come and say, but, but I'm your employee. <laughs> we have this relationship and presume that that somehow overrides the fact that, you, that it has demands. Same thing if you're an employer, right? If you're that boss, try not paying your workers and see, you know, how long that relationship works. Every relationship comes with demands. I am a parent, and that requires a bunch of stuff from me. I need to feed our kids and clothe them and care for them and love them and raise them. I am married, and that re- requires me to love my wife and care for her and live with her. Now, I am usually happy to do all of those things. Um, But the point is those are still demands that my relationships place on me. And if I am not doing those things, I've actually failed to live out that relationship. That's because you cannot separate relationships from action. Relationships never exist in the abstract. I cannot, in theory, be married to a person without doing the things that actually are acting out marriage. The same thing is true of God. He is the holy, perfect king of the universe who creates and sustains us and saves us. And to be in a relationship with God has to therefore mean that there are demands that are placed on us. Indeed, because of how intimate and how great he is, he's going to be in a significant way calling us to change how we live. And that is the logic of the Bible when it talks about obedience. Let me give you one more example from 1 John. From chapter 2, he says, By this, we can be sure that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If anyone says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Again, that's, pay attention to that logic, because that's the right way to think about obedience. John does not say, keep God's commandments because he'll smite you otherwise, or because that's how you be better than other people, or whatever. He says, if... Um, You know God, if you say you know him, but you don't live in a way that reflects the way he's called us to live, it's evidence that we haven't come to know him at all, that we might be lying to ourselves. One of the problems that a lot of Christians in our world have is that we've somehow gotten this idea that we can disconnect the relationship part of Christianity from the calls that it has on our lives to obey and follow God. Sometimes that idea is explicit. I grew up in a church, actually, um, that made this distinction between knowing Jesus as Savior and knowing Jesus as Lord. And the idea was that those were like two things and you could do one without the other. That you could pray to Jesus and become a Christian and be saved and know God as Savior. And then maybe like decades later you would figure out like, oh, like he's Lord and King and I'm supposed to follow and obey him. That's not how scripture pictures it working. But I think we can also do it in more subtle ways. Many of us, I think, have a tendency to um, say things like this. To say, like, um, Christianity is about a relationship. It's not about religion. And I have said that because the problem with that statement is that there's one way in which that can be true, but there's another way in which it can be false. Here's the way it's true, first of all. Just having religion, just having stuff you do, right, and outward kind of actions that you take— That is meaningless if you don't have that relationship with God, right? You know, I mean, going to church and following some rules doesn't make you a Christian any more than 
going to a hangar and making airplane noises makes you a 747, right? You, you, need that, you need that relationship with God to give meaning and truth to Christianity. But here's the problem. That statement that it's, you know, it's a relationship, it's not a religion, that can morph for people to mean instead, therefore, I don't need to do anything. I should not have to be involved in the church or help the poor or love my neighbor or obey God's commands about righteousness. I shouldn't have to do any of that because, man, like, it's not a religion. It's just a relationship. The Christian religion, in the right sense of the word, in the sense of doing what God commands out of a relationship with him, that always flows out of relationship, but that relationship always calls us to engage with God. If we are not seeking to follow God and obey him, the problem is not that we are lacking religion, but that we might not have that relationship. All of that said, that can leave some of us in a kind of uncomfortable place where we struggle. We can hear that and think, Sometimes I'm disobedient, which you are, and I am, just to be clear. John actually tells us that, too, in 1 John. Alongside these statements about how we have to obey God, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. We're called to obedience, and we sin. What do we do with that? Well, Let me answer that on two levels, because there's actually two levels on which we need to answer. And I'm going to take the the sort of smaller level first, the less central one. And the smaller level, which is still true, is that when Scripture calls us to obedience, it's talking about a direction of obedience rather than perfection in obedience. What Christians are expected to have is a direction of obedience rather than perfection in obedience. Which is to say, John says both, if you know God, you must obey his commands, and if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And what he's saying is that, look, we will all, every day, do things that are sinful. Given the incredibly high standard of God's holiness, right? We're talking about perfectly loving God and perfectly loving our neighbors with every word and deed and thought, like all of us, every day, will fail in that calling. But there is a great distinction between falling short in that calling and not trying. When scripture warns against disobedience, it means that sort of willful, ongoing, unrepentant disobedience of simply knowing what God commands and saying, yeah, but I'm good. And so there is, um, there's two sides of that truth. On the one hand, If you wrestle when you think about that call of God's holiness to obedience because you're like, man, I'm trying, but I just, I fail and I wrestle and struggle with sin. That is what the journey of obedience looks like, right? That's what it actually looks like to be seeking to be faithful, is to be seeking and failing and falling back on God's love for you and Jesus and getting up and seeking again. And so if that is you, you should feel a comfort in that recognition that what you're actually doing is what scripture would call obedience in this area. But there is also a warning in that idea. There is a posture of sin where we can say, I know what God commands, and you know, I don't care. I'm going to just continue on in sin. And I'm not going to grieve it, and I'm not going to seek to turn from it. Instead, I'm just going to justify that to myself and live in it. And Scripture does warn us against living in that place. 
because it would say one of the main evidences we have that we are in relationship with God is that we are seeking to turn from sin and follow after him. So if we aren't doing that, then what's called into question is whether we have that relationship with God to begin with. So that's one of the two answers to that question of if God is holy and calls us to obedience, what do we do with the fact that we're sinful? But like I said, in some ways, that's only the second lesser answer. And the reason for that is there's a more central answer, too. And that really takes us back to this text in Exodus and to the third thing it teaches us, which is that God ultimately satisfies his holy demands. God satisfies his holy demands. If you look back at the text, Israel vows to obey God. But then before Moses reads them the book of the covenant, something else happens. If you start in verse 4, It says that he got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So Moses sets up these stones to symbolically represent Israel around this altar that he erects to God. Then it says that he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. They offer up these animals as sacrifices. And it's important to realize when when Scripture talks about sacrifices in the Old Testament, that is a way of symbolizing our sin and God's forgiveness. Right? They didn't, like, the Old Testament is clear over and over that sacrifices aren't like magical ways of, you know, of paying off God or something. What it comes down to is that it's saying, this is the destruction you deserve, but I and my kindness am going to overlook it and inflict it on these animals instead. They offer these sacrifices, and then Moses took the blood, half of it, and put it in bowls, and took the other half, and he splashed it against the altar. And that's striking because we actually have examples of these ancient covenant ceremonies, and sometimes they'd have these sort of sacrifices, but what would happen is the lesser party, which is us in relation to God, right? The lesser party there would, like, kill an animal, and then they would, like, walk through the cut-up parts or put, put— the blood on them or whatever, to mark themselves as like saying, this is the consequences if I disobey, right? But God, to make completely clear to Israel that that's not what this sacrifice represents, first has them take the blood and throw it on the altar that represents him. That he's the one who somehow takes that picture of judgment on himself. And then it says um, that Moses took the blood from the bulls after doing that and sprinkled it on the people And said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So only after those sacrifices to God and the blood being thrown against the altar are the people sprinkled with this blood. And throughout the Old Testament, that image of being sprinkled by blood or sometimes water in these Old Testament ceremonies are pictures of cleansing. That all might seem like strange historical details to us, right? I know... Blood sacrifice is not the thing that you do, like, every Tuesday. But, um, but what happens is that as the Old Testament develops, we see this violent imagery um, being applied more and more as a picture of God's cleansing until by the time we get to Jesus, we find that imagery specifically being applied to him. Take this, for example. The Apostle Peter describes us as Christians like this. He says, we are the people who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. 
We are people that are called into relationship with God and called to be obedient, but we do so as people sprinkled by Jesus' blood. We're here from the book of Hebrews, the same image. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, there is a lot there, but the important thing to recognize is that Jesus, he mediates, he creates this new covenant with God, but as we come into that covenant, we do so sprinkled by his blood. Here's the point of all of this. God is perfect and holy, and we should naturally ask, how can we have a relationship with such a God when we are neither of those things? God calls us to obedience. And we should rightfully ask, how can we have a relationship with such a God when we are often disobedient and sinful? The answer is that God establishes relationship by taking the destructive demands of our sin and by taking the dangerous consequences of drawing near him as a holy God and by suffering them himself. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices symbolize. And in Jesus... God fulfills that promise. God becomes the sacrifice. He makes a covenant with us, and we break it, but the curse of that broken covenant falls on him, and so he therefore bears it in order to move through that curse to a place of restored relationship. We fail to keep up the demands of a relationship with God, but God keeps, us cha- keeps on chasing us through that failure in love. Here's the question that we need to ask about that truth. It's simply, do we really believe and celebrate that that is the case? It is only by putting these things together that we appreciate the beauty of what it means to be in relationship with God as something to celebrate. That God is holy, he's infinitely greater than us, and there is nothing in us that demands his attention or favor. And that God is holy in a way that demands our obedience. And that we are called to live as he has designed us to live. And we have not. That we have failed. But that God has nonetheless pursued relationship with us anyway. That he breaks through the barrier that that holiness creates. He descends from his throne to pursue us. He draws near to us for no other reason than his freely chosen love. He crosses that distance of his holiness. And he breaks through the barrier of our sin. He takes on flesh in Jesus and suffers and dies and rises again so that the guilt and power of our sin can be ended. He bleeds for us and then he sprinkles us with that blood to mark us as purified and forgiven. All of which is to say that we cannot appreciate our relationship with God without appreciating the fact That it is a relationship resting not on our pursuit of God, but on his pursuit of us. We think back to Israel here in Exodus once more. We need to always remember that a story like this happens in context. So remember what's happened before this. God, centuries before this, came to a guy named Abram. Not because Abram was awesome, just because he chose to come to Abram. And he enters into this relationship with Abram. 
And then Abram's descendants, who become Israel, are enslaved in Egypt, and they basically forget all about God. And God comes again and reveals himself to Moses and brings these plagues and parts the Red Sea and defeats Pharaoh and brings Israel into the wilderness. And then he descends in glory to meet with them. And that is a story from start to end about God's unrelenting pursuit of his people. And that is the same story that you and I are a part of. We wrestle at times with uncertainty. We feel accused by guilt. We struggle with doubts. We sin. We feel ashamed and distant from God and sometimes wonder whether he even loves us at all. If that's you, if you've ever lived in that place, then here is what you have to understand, that Christianity is not a story about you pursuing God, but it is a story about God's unrelenting pursuit of his people. About God's unrelenting pursuit of you. In love, God has chased you from heaven to earth to a cross through death itself, and he continues to chase you through his Holy Spirit moving and stirring your heart, and he loves you no matter how much you struggle or fail or run. His love does not change. Make that your ultimate hope. That this holy, righteous God has himself satisfied his holiness and love so that we might enter into relationship with him. Let's pray. God and Father, you are high and exalted, and I worship and praise you in your holiness. You call us to follow and obey you, and I acknowledge and confess that I often sin. But Lord, our hope is in the work that you have done in Jesus Christ to pursue us even through our sin, even through death itself, so that we might have new life in him. I pray that you might build up our hearts in your love and grace. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.